Welcome to Into the Verse, where we share new and unexpected insights about the Parsha, diving deep into the verses to uncover the Torah's own commentary on itself. Hi, welcome to Into the Verse. I'm Adina Blaustein, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Beth Flesh. Beth, welcome. Thanks so much, Adina. Really happy to be here. I'm glad. The last few Parshiot have really given so much space to discuss Avraham. So many great stories about his family, his struggles, and the upcoming Parshiot give tons of space to describe Yaakov and his journeys and his family and his children as well. But Yitzchak gets the short shrift. <laughs> yes. If you're talking about, well, what about our patriarch Yitzchak? It's pretty much Parshat Toldot. Just blink and it's gone. Yeah. And it's not that Parshat Toldot isn't a good story. Don't get me wrong. It's like a gripping oh, it's story. A great story. Yeah. Except it's just not about Yitzchak. The great mm. stories in Parshat huh. Toldot are about Yaakov and Esav. Right. Yitzchak is the the aging father who gets deceived. He's definitely not the protagonist. It, it feels that way. But there's one story mm-hmm. in Toldot where he does seem to be the protagonist, and that's where he's in Grar, in the land of the Plishtim, digging those wells. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about what it means to be a patriarch, think about the stories of Avraham and his his heroism and his struggles. And think about Yaakov as well and the challenges that he overcomes in his life. And then I'm looking at Yitzchak and the story of the wells, and that's all I kind of have to go on. And I'm kind of left with the question of, uh, why is he a patriarch exactly? What is his heroism? What is what makes Yitzchak so great? Hmm. I think I think that that's a very fair point. But both what makes him so great and also, uh, can, can I get a sense of his character? Can I get a handle on who he is? So to answer that, I'd like to do what we always do, which is, Look at the text. We're going to Google it. <laughs> oh, oh, right. That other thing that we always do. Yeah. Okay, we're going to look at the text. Yeah. So I started by opening up the first few verses of Parshat Toldot and come with me to the beginning of Parshat Toldot in Genesis 25, verse 19. Ela Toldot Yitzchak ben Avram. This is the story, the generations of Yitzchak, son of Avraham. Avram holdidet Yitzchak. Avram had given birth to Yitzchak. Vahi Yitzchak ben Arbaim Shana bekachto et Rivka bat betuel ha'arami. Yitzchak was 40 years old when he married Rivka, the son of Bituel, the Arami, Mipadan Aram, Achot Lavan Arami, Loli Isha. Okay, so we're told that Yitzchak is 40 years old when he gets married to Rivka, and we're reminded of Rivka's lineage. Nothing terribly earth-shattering here. And then you read one more pasuk, and you see that Yitzchak and Rivka deal with an incredible challenge. Pasuk Chaf Aleph, verse 21, Vayetar Yitzchak l'ashem l'nochach ishto. Yitzchak prays to God on behalf of his wife, Ki Akara. He, because she is dealing with infertility, she is an Akara. Vayeater lo Hashem, and God responds to that prayer, Vataha Rivka Ishto, and Rivka conceives and becomes pregnant. And the subsequent story is the story where Yitzchak seems to be almost an afterthought, the birth and the growth of the twins, Yaakov and Esav. So here's what I noticed. I looked at this word, Vayetar Yitzchak. Yitzchak prays to God. And this verse seems to be hitting that word pretty hard because. Yeah, because it, sh- it shows up twice in the verse yeah. in slightly different forms. It's, it's kind of cool. That was catching my eye just now yeah. as you were reading it. So that word seemed 
interesting to me. It seemed like the repetition was highlighting, look at this more. Not, not just the repetition, but it's a very unusual yes, word. Yes, I was expecting yeah. like Vait Palel, which is a word that appears lots of times. That's the generic word for right. he prayed. I did a concordance search and there were lots of entries. It appears a bunch of times in Shemot, but there was one entry that had the exact same formulation of Vayetar that Ooh. just caught my eye. And that was in the book of Judges, Sefer Shoftim. What surprised me or what like just intrigued me about that entry in the book of Judges is it was in Judges chapter 13, which is the story of Shimshon, that hero who is possessed with lots of strength and who does one incredibly heroic feat after another. And I remembered something else about the Shimshon story that made me think I needed to to look at it more. Hmm. So I want to I want to see if you're gonna see what I saw, and to no. validate me that I'm not crazy. Pull up Judges chapter thirteen, why don't you? And let's take okay. a look at the story of uh, Shimshon's birth. So Adina, I know that. The story of Shimshon, it's not in the, the Chumash, it's not in the five books of Torah, it's not one of the stories that we read every year, people don't know it as well. Can you just give us some context about what's, what's going on here? Sure. So the broader context of the book of Judges, the book of Sefer Shoftim, is after Yehoshua has led the people to the land of Israel, he's portioned out every tribal piece of land they have some period of, of peace and good times, but very quickly they become vulnerable to the surrounding enemies. And these tribes, all in their own nachalot and their own portions of land, can't seem to band together. So God sends enemies to attack them as punishment, and a leader arises, tries to create some cohesion amongst the tribes. And unfortunately, it's like a repetitive cycle in the book. And Shimshon, Samson, is one of those individuals a leader who God sends to help out the Israelites. So Beth, why don't you read uh, verse one of um, Judges chapter 13, the story of, of Shimshon. Okay. Uh, so the children of Israel continued to do that which was evil in the eyes of God. And God handed them over to the, the hands of the Pelishtim for 40 years. Keep going. So there was one man from Tzora, from the um, Adanite family. His name was Manoach. His wife was barren. There's, there's that word again that we saw in the Yitzchak verse. Exactly. So I'm going to pause you here. Because here's what happened to me. I was looking through the concordance entries to try to understand that word vayatar used in the context of Yitzchak praying to God on behalf of Rivka. And then I and saw that saw word peer, appear in the Shimshon akara, story. Akara, yeah. And I was like, wait a second, right? Shimshon's mother is an Akara and Rivka is an Akara. Hmm. Maybe you're onto something. Yeah. By the way, did you notice something about the context of the Shimshon story in verse 1? Hmm. Let me think. Arbayim Shana, 40 years. Yeah. What a bizarre detail that both stories have that context. Just so you know, Yitzchak was 40 years old when he married Rivka. Just so you know, the Plishtim have been harassing the Israelites for 40 years. So 40 Hmm. years, the Akara, the fact that Vayetar, there's a a man who's going to pray to God in both stories. 
And so I kept on reading these verses and let's see what else we can find. So come with me to verse three, the continuation. What do Shimshon's parents, uh, what happens to them dealing with this situation of infertility? Hmm. Uh, a messenger or an angel of God appeared to the woman, and he said to her, Behold, right now you are barren and you haven't been able to bear a child, but you will become pregnant and you will bear a child. So that prophecy that Shimshon's mother receives reminded me of the prophecy that Rivka receives in Toldot. In Toldot, Rivka, after she conceives, is experiencing something very difficult. Unclear exactly what it is in verse 22 in Toldot chapter 25. The, the children literally are like running around in her womb. She probably fears that she's going to miscarry. Why is this happening to me? And so she goes to seek counsel from the divine. Unclear, does she have a, an angel intercede? Does she find a Navi? And she receives a prophecy. God says to her, There are two nations in your womb, and these two nations in your womb will be locked in a lifelong struggle. And obviously this foreshadows the many narratives that follow about Yaakov and Esav and the struggles between them, the rivalry between them. Mm-hmm. Now compare this to the prophecy that Shimshon's mother receives. So just on the most simplistic level, the angel tells her, Veharit v'yeladet bin. The prophecy is, uh, you're going to become pregnant. You're going to bear a son. Exactly. So although Rivka was told you're going to have two children, but the prophecy here is, you will have a child, right? Rivka presumably was afraid that she wasn't going to have a child because otherwise, why is she experiencing this terrible symptom of the children are running at each other in the womb. So the prophecy itself is, yes, you will give birth to a child. Mm-hmm. Um, the next thing I noticed about the prophecy mm-hmm. is who gets the prophecy in each scenario. Oh, interesting. So it's the woman in both cases. Exactly. And in fact, that becomes like a kind of like a plot point in both stories, right? Unclear, does Rivka tell Yitzchak the prophecy? Do the children themselves know about the prophecy? And Manoach's wife, or Shimshon's mother, right, this anonymous woman, she gets the prophecy. Manoach doesn't seem to, to believe her, and that's when he, Vayetar, that's when he prays, oh, let me see the angel for myself. So hmm. interesting that it's the mm-hmm. woman who gets the prophecy in both situations. Um, interesting. I am, as we go, I want to sort of register my healthy, respectful skepticism when you when I, when you're showing me the Shimshon story, I was expecting, I was expecting the prophecy to be a little bit more parallel to what we see by by Yaakov and Esav. Thematically, yeah, like the big picture is the same. A lot of the details aren't, but that's just one of the points that you've shown me so far. I mean the the other the other parallels are, if not having fully persuaded me yet, have definitely got me intrigued. Sure, the space where you are was exactly where I was where I said to myself, well, okay, there's a story about an akara, a woman dealing with infertility. There are multiple stories in Tanakh where a woman deals with infertility. And those stories kind of have flavors that are are similar. 
is there anything really tying together these two stories in a way that would suggest that somehow we need these stories to understand each other or that Tanakh is encoding a message in these two stories? So come with me uh, a few more verses because I think we're going to see that there are there are clues that are tying these two stories together, I think, a bit more. So take a look in verse 4 in Sefer Shoftim. Uh, here's the instructions that the angel tells her. You need to watch yourself. Don't drink any any wine or alcohol. Don't eat any impure foods. And the explanation for that in verse 5, You're going to become pregnant and have a child. He should never get a haircut. He's going to be a nazir to God from the time that he's born. And he is going to be the savior of Israel from the hands of the plishtim. So those are her prenatal instructions. <laughs> it it starts out like a lot of other women's prenatal <laughs> exactly. instructions. Be no careful, alcohol, don't no drink caffeine, wine, sushi. go easy on the sushi, yeah. and then don't ever cut his hair because he's going to be a Nazarite to God. Yeah, that it, defi- it definitely becomes a bit distinct by the time it gets to the end. Okay, you're going to have a hairy child. Mm-hmm. Where my mind was going was the hairy child. Yeah. Ace. Uh, Not heartburn. (laughs) Go on. Well, presumably Rivka had a terrible pregnancy. Otherwise, I don't think she would have sought divine counsel. Mm -hmm. But she also has a hairy child. Asaph's birth is, he's described as kulo kaderet seyar, basically covered with hair. That's his distinct feature. And Shimshon's distinct feature is going to be, if he's never getting a haircut, he's also going to be a very hairy child. So that seemed parallel as well. It was fascinating to me. And there's one more thing that, that also struck me. Hmm. Look at the, uh, the job description that Shimshon is going to have. So we're told, hmm. From the womb. Hmm, beten. Yes. Where, what does that remind that you of? That was part of... Yeah, so that was part of the prophecy to Rivka. Hashem said, Shnei goyim bevitnech. There are two nations in your, literally in your stomach, but, you know, in your in your womb. Yeah. But but it, it's used the same way by, by Shimshon. Exactly. Interesting. And the point that the prophet is trying to tell her is, Shnei goyim bevitnech. There are two nations in your womb, and they're going to be locked in some type of struggle. Hmm. Shimshon is a nazir lukim min habatan, v'hu yachelo shiat yisrael miyad plishtim. And his grand journey, his grand destiny is going to be to be locked in a struggle on behalf of Israel against the plishtim. So that also seemed to evoke somehow Shimshon is like the two twins, uh, Yaakov and Esav, in the mother's womb, who seems to be somehow like a Rifka experience, you know, type personality. And um, put that together with the fact that the other things we've seen, the context of 40 years, the fact that Shimshon's mother, right, as we said, is an akara, the fact that the prophecy is told only to the woman about the pregnancy, the fact that it's a hairy baby, the fact that it's from the betan, from the time of the womb, this child or these children are going to be somehow as part of this national struggle coupled with the fact that the, the thing that kind of sparked this all for me is the fact that we have a man turning to God, praying Vayetar, said to me, I wonder if there's something here. There must be hmm. some way that the Shimshon story is perhaps a commentary on Parshat Toldot 
that inspired me and, and motivated me to keep reading. Yeah, I'm, I am, I'm tickled. I'm glad that it's not just me. Here's what happened, though. I kept on reading both stories, and the parallels just kind of seemed to dry up. There's, there's an and then coming, right? Yes, thank goodness. <sighs> okay. I kept reading, though, and something fascinating happened, which is I couldn't find anything in the middle of their stories, in the middle of Toldode mm. or in the middle of Shimshon's career when he's doing all these heroic feats. But then when I turned to the end, that's where the parallels seem to be coming back in mass, right, in, in full force. Ooh. So I'm hoping you can jump with me to the end of Toldote and the end of Shimshon's story. And let me show you what I found. Of course I can. So let's fast forward Shimshon's incredibly exciting career. After he grows up and his incredible strength uh, reveals itself to him and to his parents and to all the plishtim, he basically sets out to do what the angel seemed to have told his mom he was going to do. He starts killing lots of plishtim. And ultimately, it is women who seem to be his weakness and the cause of his downfall. He gets married to a woman named Delilah. And the Plishtim basically use her and bribe her to get at Shimshon's secret. So Delilah pressures him and pressures him. And finally, he gives in. He tells her that his strength comes from the fact that he's an Azir Lokin, this ascetic man of God. She lulls him to sleep, cuts his hair, calls the Plishtim over. They capture him. And he is in the hands of the Plishtim, no longer that incredible savior of Israel. So let's pick up reading this part of the story. Judges chapter 16, verse 21. Beth, why don't you start reading? Sure. Vayochazuhu Plishtim, vayenakru esenav. The Plishtim, they seized him, they gouged out his eyes. Vayoridu oso azasa, they brought him down to Aza. Vayasruhu they bound him up in some kind of bronze harness, you know, handcuffs. Yeah. So he's blinded and he's mm -hmm. captured in the hands of the Plishtim. Here's what started occurring to me as I kept on reading. So verse 22, his hair starts growing back. And the Plishtim, mm -hmm. I'll summarize the, the next few verses. The Plishtim basically are so excited that they have... Shimshon uh, now with his eyes gouged out as their slave, basically, as their grotesque pet, that they decide to make a party and celebrate the fact that they've finally captured Shimshon, who had been spending the last few chapters just basically killing Plishtim. And so they have this huge party. And verse 25, I think here's a good place to pick up. So they get all drunk. Hey, let's call Shimshon and have him... I guess, play for us. So, and so they haul Shimshon out of jail. And he, hmm. oh, you said, hmm. What did you notice? <laughs> I did. Did I say that out loud? Yeah. I said, hmm, because you said, which looks an awful lot like and shares root letters with the name Yitzchak. Precisely. So they call Shimshon out of jail to with a sin, he'll let him play for them. And then the same verse switches, mm -hmm. and it says that Shimshon was he was their jester. And I just want to pause for a moment. This is a horrible image, right? That is what he is doing for them. But he's blind. He's being mitzachek yeah. Blind Yitzchak. Yeah. That's the end of Parshat Toldot in Genesis chapter 27, when Yitzchak is blind, interesting, and he's he's a blind Yitzchak. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Okay. I was intrigued. Keep re- we got to keep reading. Okay. Because what happened next really just floored me. So they, they, uh, they have Shimshon, who's, who's their jester. Read verse uh, 26. Okay. Vayomer Shimshon el hanaar hamachazek beyado. So Shimshon said to the, the lad, the young boy whose job it was to be pulling him around, Hanicha osi vahamisheni. Leave me alone and let me touch es ha'amudim, the pillars, asher habayis nachon alehem, that, that serve as the foundation for this building, um, the esha'en alehem, uh, and I'm going to lean upon them. So, yeah, that's really interesting. This language of let me touch them yeah. um, is what we find back in the Toldo story. There's some, there's some touching there as well. That's exactly what I noticed. When Yaakov is dressed up as Esav, he approaches Yitzchak, and Yitzchak obviously suspects that something is up. And so he says to Yaakov, Gishana va'amushcha b'ni, come closer so I can feel you. Ha'taza b'ni Esav imlo? Is this really my son Esav or not? And then verse 22, Vaygash Yaakov Yitzchak aviv. Yaakov approaches a bit closer to his father. Vayimi shehu. And Yitzchak kind of felt, is this really who I know my son is? Because he's blind. And Shimshon is blind. So we've got a blind man who is mitzachek. Shimshon is vaitzachek in front of the plishtim who asks, let me hamisheni. I would like to feel these pillars. Hmm. That seemed to be a tug between these two stories, basically telling you, like, read these two stories side by side. These stories will, will teach you about each other. Shimshon somehow is a Yitzchak. And Yitzchak somehow is meant to be read with Shimshon's story in mind. So what does it mean to say that Shimshon has some Yitzchak-esque qualities and Yitzchak has some Shimshon-esque qualities? Like, what in the world does that mean? Yeah, that is, that is really, really provocative. And my mind is already racing in a lot of different directions with different just potential speculations. So we've seen so far that the beginning of Shimshon's story and the beginning of Parsha Todot line up. Somehow, Shimshon's birth, the mother being an Akara, the praying to God with that language of a Yetar, the prophecy of the child in your beta and the child in your womb, somehow that's connected to the beginning of Parsha Toldo, to the beginning of the birth of Yaakov and Esav. And then we saw how the end, Shimshon seems to be this blind Yitzchak begging to feel the walls, Hamishene Ta'amudim, let me feel the walls. So then what seemed to be only natural was to go back to that part that had been few of details and parallels before and read them again with this new light and new eyes, trying to see if, now that I know that the end of the story seems suggestive of a Shimshon Yitzchak parallel, what can I learn from the middle? Mm. Okay. The stuff that we skipped over, the Shimshon story details that we skipped over, but also the Wells story, the stuff yes. in, in, in the middle of the Yitzchak narrative. Exactly. So let's go back to the middle of Shimshon's story and read it a bit more closely. And after doing so, we'll compare and contrast to, to Yitzchak's story in Toldot. So Shimshon's career as a professional hero of Israel, I read a great job description, begins in uh, Judges chapter 14. He basically asks his parents. He met this girl from the Plishtim and he'd like to marry her. Parents are very understandably a bit surprised. Like, don't you want to marry a nice Jewish girl? They don't realize that this is all part of Shimshon's plan to have a pretext for beginning to attack the Plishtim. So he does marry this woman from the Plishtim. 
shortly after he seems to abandon her. And then he comes back a bit later to try to resume their relationship. But when he shows up, his father-in-law turns to him and says, and this is in um, Judges chapter 15, verse 2, Amor amarti kisano seneti. I thought you hated her, since you abandoned her after all. Vet nana the meriacha, and so I gave her to one of your friends. But she has a much prettier younger sister. Why don't you marry her instead? And Shimshon's reaction to his father-in-law basically saying, swap your wife out for her sister, is to say, The plishtim can have no claim on me. Literally, I'm clean for any harm I shall do to them. And so Shimshon then uses this reaction of his father-in-law and basically giving his wife to somebody else to set fire to the Plishti storehouses of um, grain and their vineyards and their olive trees. And what follows is a chain where Shimshon creates a pretext and uses it as an opportunity to uh, get revenge, destroy Plishti property, kill Plishtim. So Shimshon now has a bit of a reputation after all of this, he travels near the Judeans, and they're not exactly too happy that he's in their midst. It seems like war follows him wherever he goes, and they're not too fond of the, the conflict opening up in their backyard. Exactly. And they even turn to Shimshon, and they say, Ma Like, what have you done to us? Why are you here? The Plishtim are just going to attack us now. And Shimshon's response is almost like his catchphrase, Right? What they do to me, I do to them. And that's Shimshon's response, right? If they're going to attack me, I'm going to attack them. But he does make a shvu'ah, this sworn treaty with the Judeans. And he allows himself to be tied up by the Judeans. And he pretends to allow himself to be captured by the plishtim. And once inside the plishti camp, he's able to kill thousands of them. This cycle basically cements a pattern that we've seen in how Shimshon has been dealing with the plishtim, which is... He creates a pretext to be able to attack more plishtim. They respond. He can attack more, kill more. And thus we have the Shimshon story is a pattern of what he himself says is nekama, revenge against the plishtim. And that's Shimshon's mm. story. And you're gonna, we're going to see how somehow that parts of what you just said are mirrored in the Yitzchak story, in the part of Toldos that we skipped over. I'm on the edge of my seat. So... Once I took a look at this story and then reread Genesis chapter 26, that story of the wells, that story where we're desperately looking for, this is the story about Yitzchak, our forefather, our patriarch. I started reading that story in Genesis chapter 26, and that story started to really seem to evoke some similarities and some differences with Shimshon's career. So take a look at uh, Genesis chapter 26, verse 1. Okay. Be'yehi ra'av ba'aretz, milvad ha'ra'av harishon. There was a famine in the land, apart from the earlier famine. Asher haya bimei Avraham, that struck in the days of Avraham. Be'yelech Yitzchak el avi melech, melech polishtim. Ah, Gerara. So Yitzhak leaves Eretz Yisrael, and where does he go? He goes to Gerar, to Avimelech, who is the king of the, dun, 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 the police team. So this is a, a Yitzhak police team drama. And there aren't that many stories in Tanakh where 
the plishtim are the antagonists. So that really intrigued me. In the story of, of Genesis 26, as events unfold, Yitzchak arrives in Gerar in the land of the plishtim, and he presents Rivka as his sister instead of his wife. He basically mm-hmm. lies to the people in Gerar about her identity. But once he is mitzachek with Rivka, basically a public display of affection, and Avimelech, the king, notices this, Avimelech turns to Yitzchak in verse 10, and he says this accusation or this... An, an expression of anger and woundedness. I think so, yeah. So why don't you read what he says? Okay, so he says, Mazos asisalanu, what have you done to us? Which sounds, is that word for word? I mean, it that sounds is. an awful lot like what the, what the Judeans said to, to Shimshon when he set up in their camp. It's exactly the same phrase, ma zotasita lanu, word for word. And it's not a terribly common phrase in Tanakh. It appears three or four times. And two of these are here. And once I noticed that phrase, I noticed something else, which is how the conflict between these two parties begins in each story. In Shimshon's story, it's this marriage with this woman from the plishtim that is his pretext for beginning the cycle of revenge against the plishtim. He marries that Mm. woman, abandons her, comes back to find that her father, right, his father-in-law has married her off to one of his meri'im, one of his friends, and basically says, take her sister instead. And he's like, what do you mean? Now I have a chance where I can attack the plishtim and no one can accuse me of being unfair because I'm the wounded party. So the father-in-law suggesting, hey, swap out your wife for her sister is what starts it off. Hmm. Which is not so, okay. I mean, so yeah, that's, there's something there. Yitzchak, when he goes down to Grar, he swaps out his wife for his sister, yeah. so to speak. He says, ah, don't. Don't play the role of my wife. Play the role of my sister. He swaps out his wife for his sister. And it started occurring to me that it serves kind of the same narrative function in each. Just like the antagonism began between Shimshon and the Plishtim, when he faces this scenario where he's told, just swap out your wife for the sister, the antagonism between Yitzchak and the Plishtim also probably began when he shows up and says, this is my sister, and it's discovered mm-hmm. that she is, in fact, his wife. The Plishtim presumably felt very betrayed, wounded, annoyed that Yitzchak would, would try to pull that on them and, mm-hmm. and lie to them, basically, about what's going on. Yeah. And that seems to plant a seed of tension, I think, of kin'ah, of jealousy, so similar to nikamat, to revenge. So look at what happens um, in verse 12 in Genesis 26. He suddenly becomes incredibly wealthy. Verse 13, And he becomes great, very great, so great. And the reaction from the plishtim is a sense of jealousy. And this jealousy is expressed in verse 14. So why don't you read that verse for us? So he had acquired a lot of sheep, a lot of cattle, the Avudaraba, and an extensive staff. Vaikan uoso polishim, and the polishim were jealous of him. Yeah, and then the expression of that jealousy is action that verse fifteen describes. Aviv, Aviv, Sitmum, Plishtim, Vaimalum Afar. 
the jealousy takes expression in this act of vandalism, really, where they basically stop up all of the wells that Yitzchak's father had done when he was in the land of the Pishtim. So you have kin'ah, jealousy, taking expression in an act of vandalism, which kind of reminded me of uh, Shimshon's story as well, that you have the cycle of Nekama, the cycle of revenge, he begins with vandalism as well, where right? he burns the Plishti storehouses. So there seemed to be a paradigm for me setting up where it almost seems to be that you have some similarities, a similar story. Uh, man in the, in the lands of the Plishtim, who are his antagonists, a cycle of Nekama, a cycle of Kin'ah, a cycle of vengeance on the one and a cycle of jealousy on the other, seem to be kind of the seed planted for that started in this kind of you know, this isn't my wife, this is my sister, you know, take your sister instead of the wife. And, and it seemed to be similar. Wow, Adina, I, I want to tell you my, where my mind is at right now. Like there are so many similarities that you've, that you've pointed out to me, even more that just as you were reading, we're, we're, you know, going ping, ping, ping in my brain, like that theme, that word, that word, you know, there's a lot, there's just a lot going on here. And I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm excited to have you take my hand and lead me to, how we can start to make sense of these, how we can start to get a story here and get an argument here, because that's, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm, I'm really craving right now. I'm so relieved that you feel the same way I did when I, when I first had that experience of seeing all of these words just pop out. Here's where I went to next. Once seeing how the parallels just seem to force you to read these two stories side by side, the differences between how Yitzchak deals with the plishtim and how Shimshon dealt with the plishtim mm. started to really be thrown into sharp relief. Because in mm. the ensuing verses, the way Yitzchak deals with the plishtim is so different than what Shimshon did. In Shimshon's case, every act was a pretext for another cycle of uh, revenge and violence. We don't see that kind of spiral with Yitzchak. Exactly. There are acts of, there are acts of envy and acts of revenge but but they don't they don't spiral out because what does Yitzchak do to prevent that? Uh, Yitzchak leaves exactly. Vayelach misham, vayashav, vayet. He moves and moves. He digs new wells, and in doing so, in moving from place to place and in digging new wells, he's de-escalating conflict. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Right. If I were to put it in modern terms, it's like someone is starting up with him, and he could say. I have to take it to the next level. I have to defend my honor. I have to show them that they can't mess with me. But instead he says, no, I'm, I actually have the power to just end the conflict. I can put out the fire. I'm just going to take myself out of it. And you need to to fight. Exactly. And so he prevents a situation that starts out with kin'ah, jealousy, from becoming a situation that Shimshon was dealing with, which is it's full of nekama, it's revenge and revenge and revenge and, and, a, and a body count, basically, of plishtim. Wow. You can reflect back on Yitzchak's various moves to different locations and the wells that he's dug. He's been able to share his wealth with the plishtim, share his bounty with them, because in every location, they basically have a new well. And mm-hmm. he, has, mm-hmm. he has successfully, in a sense, shown them that they can share the land and they can live in peace. At the end of chapter 26, the plishtim travel with Avimelech to Yitzchak and they make a shvua, they make a treaty. This time, it's so different than the shvua that Shimshon had made with, with the Judeans in his story. Shimshon said to the Judeans, Ka'asher asuli 
right? What they do to me, I do to them. But when you look at the terms of the treaty that Yitzchak makes with the Plishtim, look at verse 29 in, in Genesis. They say, Im imanu ka'asher, ah, ah, You shouldn't do anything bad to us. Ka'asher lo nega anucha. In the same way that we have not struck you, we have not done any harm to you. And just like we've only done good with you, and we've sent you away, b'shalom, in peace. So just as you're not going to do anything bad to us, just as we have always done right by you. And this also echoes the shvu'ah that Shimshon made with the Judeans, right before they hand him over to the Christian, so. right? Except the terms are so different. Right? Shimshon said, right? they do bad to me, I do bad to them. This treaty is we're going to do good to each other. It seems like it's actually, it's the same principle, which is I'm going to return whatever is done to me. But in one case, there's, um, there's a noticing of of good, and the good is the thing that spirals. And in the other case, it's the bad that spirals. It's such a human quality of what comes to mind, mitzvah gorot mitzvah, v'avera gorot avera. One good thing leads to another, one bad thing leads to another. In mm-hmm. a sense, our reactions and our emotions are, are part of these cycles. Yes, or as, as my, on a lighter note, as my sleep consultant friend says, bad sleep begets more bad sleep. <laughs> But then there's the positive, which is the expression of Yitzchak's treaty with the Plishtim, right? He was somehow able to stop a cycle of kina, a cycle mm. of jealousy, and 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 reverse it into yeah. becoming a cycle of good. Yeah, Adina, this is this is great. You, I have a lot to say. You 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 opened up this conversation by asking the question, "What is Yitzchak's greatness?" Right. And I think I'm really starting to get a glimmer of what that might be, of, of Yitzchak as the peacemaker, Yitzchak as a person who musters the strength to not escalate. Yeah, you know, the title that Shimshon is often given is Shimshon Hagibor, Shimshon the hero, the, mm, the strong guy. Yeah, and the midah, the quality often associated with Yitzchak is Gavura which is strength. Hmm. I love that. Right. And I just think there's something there that in looking at Yitzchak's story through the lens of the Shimshon story, suddenly qualities that at the beginning I kind of thought like, well, Yitzchak's kind of passive. Maybe even he's kind of a wimp, right? Nothing could be further from the truth. You see this true gvura, this true restraint has nothing to do with being strong, physically strong, but it has everything Hmm. to do with this emotional strength and this psychological strength that he displays in this chapter and his ability to not only de-escalate a conflict developing in a relationship, but to improve that relationship. How many people can be able to not just, you know, stop a conflict from happening, but to then not have a grudge and to turn the relationship around it really is incredible, and I think it really it really shows the legacy of Yitzchak as a, a patriarch, just alongside Avram and Yaakov. I, I'm excited about what you've shown me, this new insight into Yitzchak, and um, it's funny that the scholar in me is just as excited nerding out about all of these 
myriad intertextual parallels that you found as the mother and wife and human in me is excited by the kind of human interest implications of of what these stories are, are telling us. So thank you for pleasing both parts of me. Thanks, Beth. Thanks for partnering with me on this. This episode was recorded by me, Adina Blaustein, together with Beth Lush. Editing was done by Evan Wiener. Our audio editor is Hilary Gutman. Our production manager is me, Adina Blaustein. Our senior editor is Ari Levison. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.